Hello, everybody, and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University, broadcasting from CHRW 94.9. I'm your host, Alex Mozinski, and today I'm hosting by myself, or you could see it as I'm co-hosting with our guest, Emma Bridgewater. How are you today, Emma? Uh, I'm not too bad. How are you, Alex? Pretty good. I'm actually really pumped up. That music was amazing. (laughs) Great job. (laughs) Um, All right, so I guess... Can't talk about how nice the weather is uh, all day, forever. But um, Emma, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do as a grad student? So, uh, All right. So I am a second-year master's student here at Western in the Health and Rehabilitation Sciences program. Uh, I'm in the focus of hearing science, so I do a lot of auditory uh, research. And I'm currently in the SAFER lab. I wish I could tell you what that acronym stood for, but I honestly can never remember. Um, so we do a lot of electrophysiology uh, work. So is the SAFER lab, is there a SAFE lab? Uh, it used to be the SAFE lab, but we transitioned into the SAFER lab, and so we're trying to figure out a way to get to be the safest lab in the next couple of years. But... Was there an incident that transpired between it being the SAFE lab and now the SAFER <laughs> lab? <laughs> Uh, it's just it's just we keep adding more uh, different types of research. So uh, the supervisor tries to let, make the name of the lab kind of fit into all of the different <laughs> projects he's got going on. We're very safe. We passed our surprise safety inspection this week, so we're good. Congratulations. All right, so you you do research on the auditory system. Um, so that's hearing. So mm-hmm. how do you conduct that kind of research? And and I guess to start things off, why do we need to do research on the auditory system? Uh, So there's a lot we don't actually know about the hearing system, which is kind of surprising given how important it is. Uh, You go through your everyday life and um, for a lot of people, being able to hear is crucial to um, to making it through the world. We go so as far as to have things like cochlear implants and hearing aids and that sort of stuff to improve the hearing abilities of a lot of different people. Uh, so having a thorough understanding of you know what's happening between the sound waves in the air coming and hitting your ear and then traveling to the brainstem all the way up to the brain is really important, but... And there, there is, has been a lot of work on that with animals, with humans, um, but there's always more to learn, especially with respect to human speech, because human speech, uh, as we like to say, is special. We have, uh, our ears are specifically tuned to hear speech better than everything else. Uh, language, uh, as I'm sure we are all experiencing daily, is important to functioning in the world, and so understanding what's going on when we're listening to language is uh, really, really important. And imagine that it's probably a very complex process then. So anybody who who ever took, you know, sensory psychology or anatomy uh, in high school or then anywhere beyond that um, is aware that there there is a, a well kind of mapped out auditory pathway in the brain. But it's probably a lot more complicated than that. And and so my, my question to you then is, is, how do you go about studying this? Uh, so yes, you're right. It is uh, a lot, a lot more difficult than just sound goes in, uh, information comes <laughs> into your brain. It's a little bit of a black box where you have signals coming in, something kind of happens along the way between the brainstem and the cortex, and then you get a whole bunch of other stuff on the other side. And so, kind of unpacking that black box is what we're trying to do. Uh, so what I do with my research is um, I use electrophysiology. So I take little tiny electrodes. You People who've had uh, EKGs in the hospitals would have had this done. And you just, I put one on the top of your head, one on the back of your neck, and one on your left collarbone. Uh, and we place sounds into the ear and measure the electrical response of the brainstem in response to those sounds. So 
for anyone who's listening, an electrical response in the brain happens because literally there is an electric signal that your brain generates. That's that's how your the the cells in the brain actually talk to one another, and so you you're able to measure the difference in what's called an EEG, and that's what she's referring to right now. All right, so. So you, you can use these EEG signals and, and study the actual differences in... You can measure the firing cells in the brain. Um, yeah, so what we get with my work is actually we're measuring amplitude, so the strength of those signals will vary based on the input that you get. All right. So what does that tell us? <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of... Uh, I'm, I'm sure, as you would imagine, there's a lot of electrical activity going on in the brain. Um, and we, what I'm looking at is something called an auditory evoked response. And what auditory evoked responses are, are electrical signals generated um, specifically in response to uh, auditory input at the ear. Um, and so there's a lot of these as well. Um, but the one that I'm looking at is called the envelope following response. Uh, and what... Before we get to, the, <laughs> to that part, so we're talking about these auditory evoked responses. Um, what... Are those used for anything other than research, uh, or is it is it mainly a research tool? Uh, so we actually use uh, a particular one called uh, the the acronym is the ABR. Um, clinical audiologists use this all the time to uh, diagnose problems in people with um, unknown kind of hearing issues. You can look at the ABR, and we know so much about this particular response, like where along the pathway it's being generated, which structures produce which. Um, characteristics of the electrical response that if you have an aberration or something that looks odd in your ABR you can actually and the audiologist can look at that and say all right well I think that you're having a problem at this part in the auditory system and then they refer you on to the hospital to do more uh, advanced tests the benefits of doing uh, evoked responses is that it's really cheap and it's really fast so so the tools that you're using are actually like clinical grade techniques in a way then uh, well, the particular response I look at is not clinician-ready yet, um, but yes. Cool. Um, all right, so sorry I interrupted you there. The the envelope following response is what you were Yeah, at? so this is a particular uh, response that we see um, in the brainstem in response to speech in particular. And so what it does is it actually follows what we call the fundamental frequency. And so every speaker you ever listen to has what's called, we would call it pitch. So it's kind of like the... Technically, it's the rate at which your vocal cords are vibrating when you talk, but it defines kind of how your voice sounds. So I have a higher fundamental frequency than you, Alex, because my voice sounds higher, uh, and that's true for women. We will, in general, have a higher fundamental than men. Um, and so what this response does is it produces an amplitude peak uh, in the brainstem at that particular frequency, and it's particularly evident in response to speech um, when you're listening to vowel sounds. So if I say something like faff to you, you're getting in right now, you would have been having uh, an EFR response to the A in faff. Faff. Thanks, Alex. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Okay. So... So they, they're, they're specifically kind of responsive to speech then, is what you're suggesting? So, well, no. Uh, you can <laughs> get... You, I know, right? You can get EFRs in response to other auditory stimuli, but what the benefit is is that other evoked responses, like the ABR, which we use clinically now, 
don't occur in response to speech. What's unique about the EFR is that you can get it in response to speech, and this is really important uh, going forward clinically, uh, mostly because the stuff we're using now to evaluate the auditory system, while it's all well and good, when we're evaluating things like are, are your hearing aids pro processing speech correctly, that sort of thing, we're not using speech sounds to do that. We're using beeps and clicks and really unnatural kind of sounds that are re reliably produce responses, but because, again, this black box that we have that we're not entirely uh, certain of the nature of, even if your responses um, to those beeps and clicks and, and funny sounds are good, is that really what we want to be happening? Is Does the auditory system respond to speech in the same way? Is there something else going on there? So what you're getting at is we really need to understand speech processing specifically and how it even differs from auditory processing as a whole. Yeah, So, and, and that's really uh, due to the limitations we have with our, our hearing technology. So hearing aids, for example, are really, really helpful, but they can't recover all of your hearing, that entire range. And so really the point of the audiologist when they're fitting you with a hearing aid is to get that speech range, uh, maximize how well you're hearing that, and kind of, you know, if you can hear other stuff well as a result. But we really want to focus on the speech. And so what we want to be sure of is that well, okay, we want your hearing aids to be processing speech in everyday life, and that's what you want for them, but we don't have any objective way of actually saying, okay, they're doing this for you. Especially for clients who, like children who get fitted with hearing aids, they can't tell you, yes, your speech sounds great, or an adult can. Babies, very young children can't do that. And so having uh, an electrical response that you could measure across every child that you see in your clinic would be really, really helpful. Okay. So, so this electrical... Uh, signal that you're specifically looking at. It's called the envelope following response. Why is it called that? What, is, what does envelope stand for in there, or is it well known? Uh, it's just because it tracks the uh, the fundamental the envelope of the vowel, which is defined by that again that fundamental frequency, the rate at which the speaker's vocal cords are vibrating, and it just kind of tracks along with that. So if you were to compare the like if you looked at the acoustic information in some kind of sound processing program of the vowel sound that you're playing them and then you look and you could take their auditory response and paste it up right next to it it would actually follow at that same frequency so if you were listening to a 90 hertz uh a vowel sound you would have an efr at the 90 hertz mark and it kind of follows the shape of that vowel okay so it's kind of a kind of a literal name i guess <laughs> i see okay so and you were saying that you, it, it's a response in the brainstem, so so this is a, a brainstem response, and, and that's part of that that auditory pathway. And, and as far as I understand it, it's very early in the auditory path. So sound comes in, you know, the sound waves come into your ear, and it gets transmitted into an electrical signal, mm -hmm. and that's one of the first places it'll go is is into the brainstem. And for anyone who doesn't know what the brainstem is, um, I highly suggest uh, you go to Google Images, but it, um, if you imagine the brain as a piece of cauliflower, the brainstem is kind of like the stalk. Um, so it's, it's, it's a very important part because a lot of information flows into the brain, sensory information, and out from the brain um, to, to allow you to do things. So it's kind of like a, a gateway almost to and from the brain uh, to the external world in, in many ways. So, so this is a very early um, thing that you're looking at then uh yeah it's within milliseconds of playing the sound you have that response right away because um, brainstem processing is very very fast um which does pose some difficulties with measuring because it's very fast and it tends to be very small uh a very small response with respect to amplitude because um 
the electrical signals you get at the actual surface of your scalp, at your brain, um, are huge. They're gigantic. But the stuff that you get at the brainstem tends to be much, much, much smaller. Um, I've had it described to me in a way that it's kind of like trying to measure, uh, if you were dropping a pin onto a pillow in a disco, it's kind of like trying to measure that. And, you know, uh, so it's, it's difficult, but doable. So it's a very, very sensitive technique that you have to use then, I guess. Uh, yes. Okay. Um, so if you if you are getting this this signal from the brainstem, what does that mean for for speech processing in terms of its differentiation possibly from uh, the auditory just general auditory processing? Is it is it an early event in the auditory process? I'm not really sure that I can actually answer <laughs> that. Um, really, based on what at least what I've been I've been reading throughout the course of this degree. The differentiation doesn't really happen at the brainstem. The brain, the, the brainstem is like your basic animal responses. Um, you're always, even if you're like with the EFR, even if you're asleep, I can measure it in you. It happens even if you aren't consciously aware of what you're listening to, which is great, by the way, uh, for my subjects. Um, and but where the differentiation really happens is up in the cortex. Like we have specific language processing areas where language goes, and that's kind of it's all dedicated to just processing words and communication. Okay, so it's it happens kind of later on then. Yeah. In the, okay, um, so this this EFR signal um, varies specifically with speech. Um, from again, from my understanding, correct <laughs> me if I'm wrong. Um, so, but you did say other sounds um, can elicit this response. Um, is there a particular type of sound? Does it have to have higher meaning? Does it have to have any kind of emotional? Uh, meaning, or if, if, you know, I dropped my pen on the table, could that elicit it too? You know, I'm not actually sure about the pen dropping on the table. I know a lot of, um, like, beeps and clicks, you tend to get a response. Usually if it has enough frequency information, you will probably get one. Uh, the lower the frequency is, like, the less, uh, the less forceful that frequency is, uh, you're probably going to not be able to really register that response at all, but uh, it's probably there. Okay. And so so if frequency makes a difference, so if if, if I talk with a, a lower uh, voice than, than you do and Barry White talks lower than both of us, um, <laughs> <laughs> so the EFR would be different then so this if is, we all said faff. Yeah, so this is actually, uh, I know you keep grinning whenever you say that. I just um, like it. So this is actually kind of the the core of the issue with the EFR um, in trying to implement it clinically. So what we've found in previous work is that if you take, uh, if I took you, Alex, and I played you vowel sounds and words and was measuring your EFR response, um, if I gave you the same vowel surrounded by different consonants, so I said faff and... Mm-hmm. Sass? Yes, something like that, you would have a different EFR response. If I gave you a sound that had differing uh, con- differing vowels but the same consonants, you might get another di- a different response again. And so there's this this individual variation, like this variation within an individual. Their EFR response is not consistent, and we don't know why. Um, so really, what I'm working on in my masters is trying to figure out well, where's that variation coming from? What acoustic? What what are, what are the acoustics behind why this changes so much? Okay, so. How are you going about trying to to tease that apart? What kinds of kinds of experiments can you run to to get at you know something that is it's a subtle response and it seems to be even a subtle 
difference that would elicit a, a change in that response. So what? how do you go about your research? Uh, so I have completed one of two experiments that I'm focusing on for my master's. So the first experiment that we have now finished was looking at Okay, well, we can see this variation if we keep the vowel constant, constant, but we change the surrounding consonants, so we change the words. So pet, said, those sorts of things. If you keep the vowel the same, but you alter the consonants, we get different EFR responses in people. So what we did is we had uh, a very patient man come in and record a whole bunch of words for me, and I took those words and I spliced out the vowels so I can control precisely what acoustic information is in that vowel going to the person who's listening to it. And I spliced out the consonants, and you kind of make Frankenstein words out of them, and then you play those Franken words to people. So you can specifically say, if I have this vowel, and this vowel has the exact same acoustic information in four different consonant contexts, like booed, food, hood, though I do alter the ending one there, um, is it the consonants that's driving this change? So it's it's a lot of really trying to tightly control the acoustic information because even if if I even as I'm speaking to you now, even if I say the same word three times, there's going to be a lot of differences based on um, like how nervous I am. I'll say it maybe faster or higher pitched or something like that. So finally, controlling that allows us to kind of get at um, is it the consonant different changes in the consonants that are really causing this. Or uh, my second study is looking at is it subtle differences in vowel acoustics um, that are doing it. So. Okay, so that seems like a pretty well-designed experiment. I certainly hope my committee thinks so. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds really good. How tedious is that for you? Well, (laughs) I mean, the recording part is fine. That's no work on my part. I just have to make someone sit in the booth, soundproof booth, for like an hour recording words for me. Um, To build the actual stimuli, I think for the second experiment, took four or five days of work just because you can't sit I can't sit there and do it and you have to be so precise and I'm constantly zoomed in on these huge sound files trying to cut at precisely the same points and it's uh so yes the long story short it's rather tedious yeah and what you mentioned about having the person come in and, and record them saying a lot of words with with all sorts of different sounds um, and then you're splicing out components of words why, why do you do that rather than just having them say fed bed, lead, and and just say the individual consonants themselves. It seems like more work on your part to have to now go back and splice it out. So uh, the problem is when you say fed versus bed, um, uh, like when you're listening to it, it the, the vowel in that word sounds the same. There's no apparent difference to the listener. But acoustically speaking, there's actually a lot of difference because the consonant that comes before influences what the shape of the like the beginning of the vowel sound is going to look like it can make it higher pitched it can change a lot of the characteristics of it so in order to see if it's truly if just the consonant that comes before and we're ignoring the um it's called coarticulation because you're even as you're saying bed as you're saying the b you're already your mouth is anticipating the vowel sound coming up and so it's changing its shape to kind of uh, accommodate for that so if we we remove those differences and we just want to see okay is will having a B in front of this vowel change your EFR response? Um, we can do that by just cutting out that uh, that muddy bit between the consonant and the vowel. Okay, so so it kind of has to do, I guess, then with the natural flow of speech then. Yes. Um, and, and how a preceding thing that you might have said would, would flow into the next word. Yes, so strictly speaking, my stimuli are not 100% natural speech, which is, I mean, ultimately that would be the goal. Um, 
But until we can pin down where all this weirdness is coming from, we kind of need to do the next best thing. And in comparison to all of the other stuff that's been done with this, this really is the next best thing. That sounds really great. What are you finding? Well, uh, so for the first study, which is the only one I've actually have enough data to really do any analysis on, it, it seems like the consonant context doesn't really have an effect. So that suggests that it's something to do with the vowel that's driving the change, which isn't entirely unexpected because vowels are really, really strong acoustically. Like they're really salient when you're listening to them. They're really, really loud in comparison to consonants. Um, so there's something going on with, with just the vowels. So we're hoping that that's what the next experiment is going to tell us, but who knows? That's, that's actually really interesting. So <clears throat> totally, I don't know if it's a crazy question or not then, but a person's accent can affect how they say a specific word. Mm-hmm. How do you do versus how do you do versus how do you do? And, and so the way I just said how, uh, you could have basically swapped out an O for an A for an E. Um, so that would potentially then have a completely different response. Yep. You might have a larger response. You might have a smaller response. We might not be able to measure any response. Um, so, so really crazy question then. Oh boy. Yeah. Okay. Totally crazy. Some people have a really difficult time interpreting specific accents, whereas other people can interpret it very, very easily, I guess, partially because of more experience with it, but... Do you think that a difference in this stimulus then could potentially have uh, have an effect on our ability to, to just plain process the sounds? Because it happens to be a brainstem response that we're measuring specifically, my, my first instinct is to say no, because the brainstem doesn't care what the accent of the listener is. It's really, I heard a sound, there's acoustic information, okay, fire, go, and you get your response. Um, now, there has been another study done on a similar uh, evoked response that does kind of the same thing as the EFR, um, which suggests that there's actually a cortical component to what's producing it, which may then in turn suggest that there's some higher order processing going on that might modulate that response in some way. So my answer to you is maybe. <laughs> All right. Sounds sounds really good. As so many things in research. That's always the answer. <laughs> Um, okay, so so that was your your first series of experiments, and, and you you have found that there's a really strong tie between the vowel, um, irrespective of the consonants surrounding it. Yep. Um, and that it it ties closely to the this EFR. Um, what was it called? The envelope following response. Yep. Okay. Um, so moving forward, I guess, what's your next experiment um, looking at, or how are you trying to? move take the next step Ooh, that's a big question (laughs) um so my goal going forward into hopefully a phd project is um so the next step once we kind of pin down okay where is this variation coming from in order for it to be clinically viable we also uh need to say where is this response specifically coming from so like for the abr it has five generators along the brainstem up to the, the cortex, and we know exactly where each of those generators is and what and the time course when that generator kicks in. And so in order to use the EFR in a clinical way, we need to know, have some similar information, and we don't have that yet. We have animal studies which suggest, okay, it's probably in this area and in this area, and some studies that have been done in humans, uh, the limitations of human studies being that you can't do anything invasive in the brainstem because it's kind of an important part of your uh, 
system. Um, So the next step going forward would be to do uh, what we call source localization. So where are these electrical responses coming from? What are their origin sites in the brainstem, in the deep brain, and possibly even in the cortex? Okay. So really hammering down and figuring out what the physiology of this this electrical response is and what is happening. Yeah, exactly. That, that sounds like it would be huge in terms of understanding auditory processing. It, it would be really, really great, actually. Yeah. So so what does your research, you know, if that's your next step or, or even if you don't go there and, and you stick with, with your current findings, what does it mean then in terms of our understanding of auditory processing? Just big picture, I guess. Big picture. Hmm. Well, so the the goal of my research is ultimately to push this towards uh, a clinical tool. Um, and if we can kind of see, well, we see all these these subtle variations in acoustics and speech responses that have differences even at the level of the brainstem, maybe as like bringing back to your earlier question, maybe language, there really is a difference with language versus uh, car horns and bird noises at that early of a stage. And this might help slowly start kind of untangling what's going on with that because as much as we like to say that we know a lot about language and we're very experienced with language there's a lot about it that's kind of still up in the air um so this will just be another like one more tool to add to the uh the researcher's toolbox and hopefully the clinician's toolbox one day to uh to help understand what's going on all right my last question because uh, we are just about out of time um if this does make it to a to become a clinical tool um what do you predict would be the, the therapeutic approaches or the the implica- um, how they might implicate this uh, particular tool? Uh, so most clinics already actually this is and this is the great part already have the setup to do electrophysiology. Every clinic will have something to measure the ABR, which is measured in a similar way. It uses the three electrodes. One is in a slightly different spot, but um, all clinics will have electrodes. They'll have the cords that you need to, then the box to plug it into to be able to measure it. And so it really won't be that hard to implement it. We just need a stimulus that they can play. And so ideally what we would get out of this is a list of words that we can see reliably elicit EFR responses across a wide range of individuals. uh, And you can pack that up into a box or on a USB and ship it out to clinics, and then they can do their own EFR measurements. All right, thanks. So is there anywhere people can go to to check out your research if they're more interested, a website, you know, blog? Uh, I have almost no web presence. You can find me on Twitter at uh, thecraftygrad, um, but it's not updated a whole lot, nor does it have to do a whole lot with my research. Uh, It's mostly just my crazed coffee-fueled ramblings. but feel free to follow me, um, Gradcast Radio, I suppose, if you really want to talk more. Okay. Thank you very much. And everyone, thanks for listening. This has been Gradcast. We, uh, we go on air live every week now from 6 to 6.30 on CHRW 94.9. And you can also find our podcast at gradcastradio.ca or gradcastradio.com. Uh, if you're interested in, in participating on the show, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Thank you very much.